Welcome to the inaugural edition, Main Street Politics. My name is Daniel Bonham. First and foremost, I'm going to give a little bit of personal background. You know, I was appointed to this job in 2017, and before that, I, I was literally living life, running a small business, uh, coaching some basketball teams, husband, father, son. I mean, just, I was, you folks listening to this show, I, I was you, and this job opportunity opened up. I threw my hat in the ring, and I was appointed, and here I am now a state representative. Since we started this gig, I hired on staff, and we started thinking about how do we reach back out to people at home so they know what we're doing here, so they can stay involved, they can stay informed and connected to this process that uh, I think so many times we elect officials, they go away, they go to do a job, uh, we elected them, we trust them, and we send them to do the job, but we don't stay connected to what they're doing, and we don't stay super well-informed. And in today's environment, with so many media options, uh, print, radio, uh, the traditional media, but then the social media aspects, and for me, I've found that as I'm on the two- to three-hour drives uh, back and forth to Salem or throughout the district, I've found podcasts to be a wonderful way to pass the time and stay informed on topics I really care about, What's our style going to be? What are we going to do? We're going to do some interviews. It's going to be eclectic. We're going to have some fun facts. We're going to get some history sprinkled in. We're probably going to walk through some uh, process and procedure, how the Capitol works, uh, some faces around the building that you'll never get to see, but engage with leadership, give you windows into you know, some of the personalities here. If I'm going to fumble on my first podcast, who better to pick up the ball and run with it? than Representative McLean. And with that, let's introduce our guest for today, Mike McLean from Condon, Oregon. I wasn't born in Condon, Oregon. You weren't? Well, where were you born? Anchorage, Alaska. Anchorage, Alaska? Wikipedia steered me wrong. Well, as you know, it's not always an accurate biography, but uh, thank you for giving me a heads up. I need to change that. We're going to get on there All right. and we're going to fix that. Right. Uh, from raised in Condon. I was Is raised. I graduated. It's my hometown. We moved there when I was, I think, 11 or 12, 11, 10, maybe. And uh, I, I grew up in Condon and then graduated from Condon High School. Went Blue to Dallas. OSU. Went to OSU. Oregon State University. Is this? Let's make sure this is right. Agricultural Resource economics, yeah, agriculture, resource, and economics. What I, is that? I don't know. What that that is, is. Uh, like an economics degree, a business degree in agriculture commodity. It has to do with, uh, and I had a minor in macroeconomic theory and like geology and stuff. So I had, I, I was very interested in economics, but when you're dealing with agricultural products, by and large, they're perishable, and so you're dealing with more factors of market supply and demand issues than commodities that are not agriculture. So it's more interesting. Yeah, fascinating. And then on to law school, Lewis and Clark. Yeah, I went to a Lewis and Clark Law School. I didn't really have, a, I, I, uh, I got admitted to a few. I didn't apply to that many, but, and I narrowed it down pretty quickly between U of O, uh, University of Washington and Lewis and Clark, because I wanted to stay in Oregon, Washington. Lewis and Clark offered me a scholarship and I didn't really, you know, think about it, but it was an, at the time, it was an environmental law school, second ranked in the nation and attracted a lot of very committed liberal students. And I had been 
a conservative guy, you know, raised in a town that was conservative, been at Oregon State University, vice president of college Republicans. So I thought, you know what, in law school, I need students and uh, faculty who think different. I went to Lewis and Clark uh, in two parts because it was liberal and I wanted to see what that was like. And they offered me this great scholarship, which at the time I thought was ironic. You know, here was this conservative Republican and uh, they were giving me a scholarship to a liberal law school. I love it. So, you know, go figure. Finish that. And you went and clerked with W. Michael Gillette at the Oregon Supreme Court. Yeah. Justice Gillette. Great. Brilliant man. Great judge. He was on the court, a Supreme Court for the state of Oregon. He hired me for two years to be his law clerk. So I drafted opinions for him, did research. It was the greatest job you can ever imagine coming out of law school. Then you had some experience in the U.S. Attorney's Office? When I was in law school, I worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office and for a law firm, Stoll Reeves, were my two jobs in law school. And so I clerked basically for about two years for the U.S. Attorneys. And I was a certified law clerk, so I did like small little traffic crimes. I mean, here's the irony is the U.S. Attorney's Office has jurisdiction over parking tickets at the VA hospital. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He lets us law clerks go litigate those. I actually went out and did uh, some bench trials in Pendleton one time with this guy who was squatting, you know, a Vietnam veteran who was not, he was clearly struggling with some mental health stuff and he squatted and on forest lands and eventually they hauled him into court. Everyone was afraid of this guy. And then when he came in the courtroom, I became afraid of this guy, (laughs) but I ended up Um, prosecuting him for these crimes and the judge at one point he tried to enter some evidence I objected and the judge just looked at me like what the hell are you doing this guy's gonna get we're gonna let him do whatever and uh, so he ended up being found guilty but the judge uh, suspended all sentence and fine and basically you know got him to move because even the judge I think was afraid of him so uh, but it was a great job at the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, and I worked on uh, uh, drafting appellate court briefs to the Ninth Circuit, so it was fun. So I'm curious, you mentioned in college you were the vice president of the Republican. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah I was the vice president. I never, I couldn't, I couldn't get president. You know, unlike you, I have uh, <laughs> suffered as a number two. No, I, I will tell you, my college, or excuse me, my high school. You know, I was president of my class. Uh, my junior year, and I thought, oh, you know, I've really set myself up to be successful. I ran for ASB president, and I got demolished. Wow. Uh, it was a sign of the times to come. Uh, it was a relatively liberal, uh, progressive female, and she came out, and she just said all sorts of outlandish things and rallied the crowd and, and really raised their emotional level and I had given a very matter-of-fact speech. This is what we're going to do. Well, this yeah, you how were we're going to make it better. Republican and got your lunch. And she crushed me. I don't know what the final outcome was. I, I'm thankful that I don't know, so I can have a little bit of a, you know, pride and ego with uh, looking back at my high school days. Well, but, listen, that's rough territory, Tigard High School. That's you right. Know, uh, <laughs> that's uh, Margaret Doherty territory. I'm you know, and I'm so there's four of us in the legislature today. Uh, Senator Hass. Uh, Rep. Rayfield, Rep. Neron, and myself. I graduated in 95. Uh, Rayfield and Neron graduated in 97. And Mark Hass graduated before us. Yes, he did. <laughs> he was before you. Probably more my vintage than yours. But, uh, well, that speaks well of Tugard High School. I think there's only one Condon High School graduate in the Capitol. Um, so there you, you beat us. 
we, we won one thing. That's awesome. Um, so I, I get curious now. I mentioned in Condon, you were mm-hmm. a young lad growing up in yep. Condon. At that time, what did you dream of being? You know, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to go do this. Well, I wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. Um, I grew up reading a lot. And I read a lot of American biographies. And I read faithfully Mad Magazine. Those two shaped my personality and perfectly prepared me for politics. I think, you know, being a trial lawyer, having the ability to talk to a jury, to talk about constitutional rights, et cetera, was on my mind early. And I'm glad I did. It's been a great career. I've been able to do some really challenging and engaging work and you know, honored to, I got, uh, to get to have done that. I don't remember really, I mean, there were times I enrolled in uh, like some engineering classes and I thought, well, maybe I'll be an architect. I mean, I had different ideas to say, well, maybe I'll go do this. And so, may, you know, maybe I like that better. But right. what happened yeah. when I went to law school, I mean, uh, college is that, you know, by the time I was done with my sophomore year, it was clear. It's like, no, I really do want to be a lawyer. So um, I needed to focus uh, on that. And then in 2010, you ran for office. So I get curious then, is there a moment you can point to in life where you, you decided, okay, yes, I'm a lawyer and I enjoy that. And by the way, it has been fun for me. There are some nights I can't sleep. And so because I'm a party animal, I'll log on to Olus and I'll watch something that fascinates me. I'll look up a topic. And and I've gotten a little glimpse into what you might be like in trial watching some uh, of those judiciary hearings. Uh, it, it's been fun to watch oh, you, you rail away on some of these topics. Um, but I, again, just curious, you know, at what point did you say, OK, I, I, maybe I do want to run for office? Well, you know, it was 1993. You were just a young lad in high school. And Sophomore year, yeah. I clerked at the Supreme Court, then took a job with a law firm in Portland, Stoll Reeves, which was the largest law firm in the state, but I was still living in Salem. We were thinking of moving up, or I was thinking, well, maybe I'll get a job in Salem, because my wife and I really enjoyed working in Salem. My wife, by the way, Holly, um, I met in college, and uh, we got married right after college. And Back then, we were in that incredibly blissful state of uh, no kids. I got recruited to run for the legislature, and I was 29 years old, and or 28, I guess, at the time, 28. It was very flattering. I was living in West Salem, and uh, the Republicans uh, were already prepared to back me. A lot of the agriculture interests, I was their guy. And I was really excited. And my wife, not so much. And (laughs) not long after that, she found out she was pregnant. Mm. So she said, look, you know, we need to have kids. You know, this isn't the right time. And so I've always tried to move forward in agreement with my wife on major decisions. Oh, that's really wise. Because because (laughs) it's, there is wisdom in that. And not everyone does. And we may not agree on uh, where we're going to dinner, but we do agree on the direction of what are major things in our life. And so I just thought, you know what, if she's not in agreement, now's not the time. So years later, my wife came to me and said, it's time to run. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, we were in the Great Recession in Central Oregon. Very difficult. She was 
enthusiastic, like it's time to run. You should run for the legislature. And, uh, I, I geared up in 2009 and ran and uh, won. Having uh, the right time was fantastic. And to be frank, it is the difference between being 29 and 44, night and day. I mean, I had experienced the birth of three children. Mm. I had highs professionally. I had lows professionally. Yeah. I had lived a lot. That's a lot of life to live, you know, raising kids and et cetera. And so I'm glad I didn't not come here as a 28, 29-year-old, which, you know, and there are people who do. And uh, But as for me, it was better to be older and have uh, lived a little more life. Starting out, is there anything like looking back? Like, I wish yeah. I would have known this when I was a freshman legislator just starting out. I, you know, the, the rhythm of the session, you become aware of when you've served here a term. And you become intimately aware when you serve two or more that there's a t there are timelines and then there are real timelines. You know, the rhythm of the Senate and the rhythm of the House are a little bit different. But the May forecast is when everything begins. You're in session here and we're moving some bills and this, but that's when the real session begins. And the negotiations really take place between May forecasts and June 30. So number two, you know, I would say that understanding uh, how bills move in both chambers takes a while as well. But once you really understand that, hey, you may get a great bill and you may work your relationships and get it out of the House, but when it passes the House, it's day one in the Senate. Right. It starts all over. And so you have to not neglect that sister chamber. And then, of course, you better give the governor a heads up if you want her to sign your bill, right? So yeah. to add, even a courtesy, even... You may say, well, how is she going to not, what is she going to do? Veto this, you know, bill that says we all love puppies. But it's a, I think, a show of respect, frankly, to to give her and her chief of staff, ledge director, a heads up and say, hey, I should appreciate if she'd support. So those are the types of relational and system things that, looking back, I think all freshmen really should sit down and say, it's one thing to become proficient in your committee, and it's another to become proficient in the House of Representatives. But if you want to move legislation or influence how to kill bad bills or move good bills, you need to realize there's two chambers in a governor's office. Right. Now, and I, I will say this too, you know, being appointed and coming in the way I did kind of, you know, mid uh, interim and then having the ability to reach out to John Huffman, my predecessor, and having him be so kind and generous with his time. And then Cliff Benz was the same way. And then Senator Hansel was the same way. Then Senator Johnson was the same way. Then your office was the same way. And being able to have people truly dedicate uh, and share wisdom and understanding of the process. Like, I I'm so thankful for the timing of when I came in because it wasn't your elected go into session. It was, mm. you're elected, you've got time to set up your office, you've got time to engage with some people and, and start to build those relationships. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for what you did for me when I first came in. And uh, with that, I'll move to the next question. All right. Your best friend approaches you and asks, Mike, should I run for office? How do you respond? And for the sake of this question, let me preface, let's assume that this is a capable person and this is not somebody that's interested in primarying you. Like, 
you want you maybe would want them as a colleague. Well, first to address what you don't want me to address. Bring it on, baby. Okay? I'm up for this. Absolutely run. Everyone should do a season of public service. I, I, I believe that. I mean, if, it, if you have any interest in that, do it. Public service is uh, a theme in my family, and um, I've always been involved with it. And, you know, there's been seasons where I haven't done it. And, you know, I joined the National Guard, for an example, after 9-11, and I've served in there. And you can do public service in many different ways. You know, if you're leading a Boy Scout troop, right, or whatever. So, but serving here is not only a great honor. It, you know, it's, it takes a lot of time. We need quality people. We only get to do it for, we're caretakers of this republic. It's built on good people being willing to step forward and contribute some years of their professional career to deciding policy for the state, listening to constituents, becoming advocating or advocate for your district, all that stuff, all is key to good people being willing to do the job. Absolutely run. Is, is there any space in this conversation to, to warn them about the challenges with uh, having their business interests or their family? Yeah. How do you, how do you approach that when you're talking well, to somebody? You about know, look, I believe that you can anticipate every problem and try to solve it before you begin. But, you know, as they say, you, you know, plan the fight and fight the plan. I mean, I don't know what the issues are. Everyone assumes that, oh, it's going to be a big sacrifice to your professional career. And, you know, it is because yeah. it takes time or to your business. And it is, it takes time. But we have to be careful not to project our problems onto other people. When I'm out recruiting, I'm being honest with people about the demands, but I'm not out there to tell them, look, you know, this will be a doggone disaster financially. You know, after you basically, I've seen people be honest where they're basically saying, you know, gosh, you're going to end up with your neighbors not liking you and <laughs> people on social media will hate you. It's will be a disaster for you business. And I'm... I, I'm looking at one of my colleagues going, would you shut up? Yeah. My yeah, God, yeah. I'm depressed <laughs> just listening to you. It's like, you know, doggone it, be honest. Hey, it's going to take a lot of time. And you may on occasion have people say some things which aren't nice, but I don't know what, but it's going to be incredibly rewarding. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, for someone who says, well, gosh, you know, I could lose business, you know, maybe I'm selling stoves and, you know, the Dow's. Well, yeah, maybe there's someone who doesn't buy a wood stove from you, Daniel, because you voted in a certain way. But there's probably two that will say, you know what, I like that guy. Let's buy a stove from Daniel because uh, he's, uh, you know, sacrificing for us. So, you know, I don't think it's a the hardship people say. Yeah. If you have an attitude of this is my season to serve and I want to do it as best I can. I just really did find it fascinating. One of my first conversations with Bill Hansel, sat down on a couch. We were down at AOC. It was between my appointment process from PCP vote and the county commissioner vote. And I, he gave me like an hour and a half on the couch and talked. And I want to say the first 30 minutes was probably talking about family. And then I met Senator Johnson at that same event. She said, call me if you get appointed. If you get through the process, I called her up. 
And again, I'd say we talked for like two and a half hours on a Sunday afternoon. And the first 30 minutes of the conversation was talking about her growing up as a daughter of a legislator hmm. and said, you know, make sure you warn your kids. And especially in this day and age with social media, the way it is that they're going to read about what a boob their dad is Yeah, and make sure that your wife knows that you're down there for the short session and the gorge gets iced up and you're not going to make it home. And just such pragmatic and, and practical advice from well, too from, too wonderful. I mean, yeah. Bill Hansel is one of the great gentlemen of uh, Oregon, and uh, Betsy Johnson is one of a kind, right? She's yeah. an honorary senator from Central Oregon because we, you know, treat her as part of our delegation. She's, but that's quality of people you get here. Yes, it takes sacrifice in your kids. I joined the army after 9-11, right? So I had a lot of people who deployed for six months, 12 months to a war zone. Well, they didn't see their kids ball games. Right. You know, yeah. and I spent some time on active duty and, and I missed an entire football season. You know, I didn't watch my daughter play volleyball. I didn't watch my sons play football. Yeah, that's the nature of public services. Sometimes it means you're going to miss out on stuff, but... Your family is with you in the service. Now, if you're not engaged with your kids um, or your spouse when you're home, well, then they're, that's the real issue. Right. Besides my kids, I mean, they didn't miss me yelling from the sidelines too, too much. At one point, I remember one of my son's buddies referred to me as Representative McScreamer because I was... Uh, I'm very vocal. I'm a big booster. I know? think my kids don't miss the the critique on the ride home. Yeah, the, de the post game debrief with dad. No, I, I, yeah, I the post game debrief. I'm, I'm not too much of a second guesser, but I am a huge advocate during the game. It's emotional. I'm up. I'm down. Oh, yeah. I'm, you know, it's like, and I'm always ready to. I'm generous with officials. I offer my opinion. <laughs> There's not a thought I don't share with them. I'm just very generous with officials. When we first came in this year, uh, they got all the freshman legislators together, and I called the clerk's office, and I said, hey, can I be included? And Tim was great. And he said, yeah, please come join us. And they brought in uh, Peter, uh, excuse me, I'm so informal, Senate President Courtney. Senator Courtney. And he came in, and it was interesting. The, the one thing that just absolutely stuck with me with everything that he shared that day was he said, you know, you should realize that you did not get to this position by yourself. And whether it was staff, whether it was family, friends, uh, financial contributors, whoever it was. But you got here with a team, but you can lead by yourself. He said, I've seen plenty of people do it. They come here, they dedicate, they just, they dive in so deep that they neglect everybody else in their lives and they end up leaving by themselves. And that, that did stick with me. Yeah, that was something I a, thought was... That's sage advice. Right? Shifting gears... Young people. Mm -hmm. How do we get young people, not just interested in politics, but for your and I's uh, maybe consideration, how do we how do we find and engage folks that uh, would be young conservatives? Well, I think the, you know, they're, the millennials are yet to be defined. Um, I'm not completely sold that they're a, you know, progressive horde, you know, unleashed upon the world. I think they are very concerned and they should be about their future. And so they're more engaged than Gen X, which I'm one of the older members of Gen X. 
we should encourage, and I know we both have, uh, internships and getting young people here. But one of the things that I've always said to young folks, and I say regularly to college groups, and that is, look, here are some problems. These problems are not being solved by baby boomers. If you knew that there were some people running up a line of credit against your home, you're going to have to pay the bill. Mm. When would you decide it's time to speak up or engage? That's what's happening. Whether they look at the national debt being financial or climate or you know, societal, in the end, there are debts to be paid by their generation. The more millennials who engage and engage with a clear intent of, look, we can't afford to wait to shape government, the better, because it's unfair to them. There has been a generational theft, hmm. the likes the history of the world has never seen, and it was done to them. They need to engage yeah. now. I was listening to a different podcast, and uh, there was a interview with President Obama, and he used this, and I thought this was a fantastic example. He said, you know, Michelle and I were getting ready to leave, and the girls were coming along, and we were talking about voting, and the girls were kind of skeptical about whether or not they should engage in this process. And Michelle looked at the girls and said, would you allow your grandmother to choose your playlist on your iPod? And I said, well, of course not. I said, well, then why the heck would you allow your grandma to dictate your future in terms of the way this country's run? I thought that was uh, interesting. I think yeah. that's very wise. Yeah. Um, so another podcast of the day, listening to a Dennis Miller interview, and uh, he made this comment I thought was fascinating that I thought might intrigue you about today's political audience. And he made up a word, but I like it. And you'll, I'm sure you'll just go with it. The subjectification of empirical data. When you have facts right in front of you and you get to choose how you interpret those facts. And, and it just seems to be rampant in today's uh, news media and today's political climate. What, what do we do about that? You know, that's interesting because what that is, is confirmation bias in, in essence, saying that, look, you're just simply going to see and believe what already confirms the direction you want to go and very few people i mean we're sort of you know natural selection genetics i mean we're predisposed to do that what's happened is that political battles were won or lost based upon who could obtain more facts and and so we if you look at the last 40 50 years and really, since the war in poverty was declared by, you know, 54 years ago by President Johnson, all the, the people just, you know, stats and facts and et cetera. And so what's happened is over that period of time, you know, these political battles for control of the government had different tactics. And so the ebb and flow of those tactical decisions, game plans were often driven by interpretation of what facts were in your most favor. And um, in everyone claiming a moral high ground based upon the facts that they wanted to see. What's, what's going on, I think, currently is that um, you have facts being ignored for or, or being derived 
not based upon what they say or the method by which they were derived. Scientific method or statistical analysis, you know, regression analysis with certain points set. But they're being based on, you know, the uh, gender of the person who did the research or their nationality or their privilege. And so people are ignoring facts based upon who they want uh, or who that person is that presented it. Getting us back to where almost it started, that we ignore the message because we don't like the messenger. So this has happened before. What I think is tragic is that iceberg is dead ahead. <laughs> you know, I mean, the financial obligations, which are like an iceberg, the massive ones you don't see, the aging baby, I mean, all these obligations, climate, yeah. et cetera, that people know are huge problems we got to deal with. And people are arguing over who gets to line the deck chairs of the ocean liner, what music we're going to play. I mean, it, it it's infuriating. So my frustration is that the irony that immutable characteristics, which used to be seen as uh, when the war on poverty started in this explosion of government, you know, spending and the mm -hmm. like, which I go back to what the, the 60s as being a very pivotal era of the federal government's uh, agenda. Whether we had conservative presidents thereafter or liberal, it didn't matter. We just set a trajectory for our state government, and, or I mean our federal government. I get back to this idea that we are, uh, uh, the, the trend line began there with immutable, immutable, you know, race, sex, you know, national origin, all these things that ultimately don't base opinions on other people on that. And now here we are where we say, oh my God, base your entire opinion, not only of them, but of the facts they're espousing based upon that. Yeah. And that irony doesn't escape me nor anyone else really, but that's also happening when we are in the need of action, probably more now than anywhere else in my lifetime. I, I suppose you could look back and say, look at the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, we had a great president. You know, there's been a certain points where you just go, okay, what well, we need leadership. Yeah. We're at one. I, I, I. So let's do something fun. Okay. What is something that people would be surprised to know about you? Well, I suppose surprised to know about me. Um, I am a three-sport varsity athlete from Condon High School. And I heard as a pitcher, you could really hit your spots. Oh, my That's... God. I was an accurate pitcher. And, but I, uh, I was not a big hit. You know, I hit for average. I only hit one ball out of the park. Uh, most people look at me and go, my God, that guy is a home run machine. <laughs> But uh, I never did. No, you never did. My only home oh. run was an inside the park that my best friend will argue was a triple with a one base error. Uh, we won't go yeah. there. Right. Uh, I was going to say, you know, I, I found on your shelf at home there the wooden teeth and jelly beans. Yeah. Do, do people know about this? Is this widespread? Well, I, I did write a kid's book <laughs> along with some friends. We, we had a book series. You know, I took the point on uh, presidential history and American history. Yeah, it did well. I think it's still in book fairs, right? You know, because uh, that's the nice thing about history books is, you know, they, they're still applicable. <laughs> 
So yeah, I, I wrote the book. We had a TV show on CBS. It was really uh, fantastic. Is this session different than your previous sessions? It is. You know, I've been the uh, Republican leader for six years previous to this. And prior to that, I was a uh, deputy leader for a while. And so um, it is much more relaxed for me. I finally got to be on Judiciary Committee, which I've always wanted to do and, and just dive in, roll up the sleeves, be about some policy stuff. I've, I've enjoyed that. I'm still on Ways and Means, so I'm yeah. still in the budget discussions. I enjoy that. I enjoy so Main Street folks back home in our districts, mm -hmm. what should they be concerned about? Well, look, the question is, is the state government focused on freedom, uh, free and fair markets and families? And when you look at those areas, which are at the heart of what I believe is core values of the Republicans in Oregon, they're not acting in the interest of folks back home. I don't believe the gun bills, if they have super majorities with all the issues going on, then they run these crazy left gun seizure bills, which just infuriates me because, you know, way to just simply, uh, it's like it, it, Paul George dunking on the Blazers with, you know, one second left in game three, right? All it, it's just like, why are you doing this? Why not instead try to build more bipartisan support of, dealing with uh, financial issues, our schools. So I'm very concerned about that. I One party states are not generally healthy. One party supermajorities are incredibly unhealthy. Right. And that's where we're at. So yeah. folks back home know should know that life is going to get more expensive in Oregon as a result of um, Democratic supermajorities and the leadership of Kate Brown. We're going to raise a business uh, other taxes, fees. Mm -hmm. So you're going to pay more to the government. You're going to pay more for your utilities. You're going to pay more at the pump. You're going to pay more for life. And you're going to get less from your government. But uh, a lot of crazy Portland-centric stuff is uh, happening. So my frustration is that there's not enough uh, being done by that majority party to reach out to folks in the Dallas and Pineville and Lapine. Yeah. Um, now... We're getting things done, you and I, despite all that. But, uh, you know, in the bigger issues of how much does your government cost? What is government doing to, you know, provide public safety, educate and take care of some folks? You know, things are getting more expensive and that's frustrating to me. Well, that was the other thing, you know, under the surprise section. I wasn't sure if people knew that you were a Star Trek nerd. Like there were, there were some things that yeah. we could have talked about. Yeah, I am a Star Trek nerd. I love Star Trek. Uh, my favorite captain is uh, Captain Kirk. James, James C. Tiberius Kirk, God the greatest him. ever, William yeah. Shatner. And I often think of myself as William Shatner on the floor of the house. Uh, no, Many of my seriously. Or Shatner. That makes sense. Um, but I've been told I really should aspire to be like John Luke Picard because he was more logical Mm. More measured, but I can't. I, you know, I got. I grew up. You've with, got a charisma about you. I, I grew up with Kirk. Yeah, I'm a Kirk guy. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're either Picard or Kirk. There's no in between. Thank you so much, and thank you, the listeners, for joining us for this inaugural show. If you have any thoughts or ideas, please contact our Salem office at five zero three nine eight six one four five nine or our district office at five four one seven one nine eight seven four five. Talk with you all soon.